0: Today is November 14th, 2013, and this is episode 1248 of the Survival Podcast. And i got a good one for you today. Uh, Ken Strayer, who is a uh, listener of the show for about three years, is going to be on to talk about curing meats. This is something very new to me. Uh, About the only meat curing I've ever done is biltong and jerky. Um, And uh, I've got some new stuff I'm going to probably try this weekend, partially from this interview, partially from some research that I did. I'll tell you now, um, I had Ken on, and I went through his questions. Uh, all of his questions, and we were at about 20 minutes, and we stopped, and we talked a little bit about a few more things he could cover, and we, we didn't get to 30 minutes. And my show generally runs an hour or a little bit more, so I decided to put some extra material in at the front end of this one. So here's how this is going to run. I'm going to do the normal stuff that I do, the intros, the uh, uh, sponsors of the day, things like that. Uh, I'll do our history segment. i got a little piece of history for you for the year 1248, and then I'm going to actually talk about how to make biltong. Uh, those of you who haven't heard that before, you might really want to listen to this because it's one of the coolest things I've ever learned in my life, and it's so simple, stupid. It's 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 unbelievable that more people don't do it. Uh, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about some things you can do with something called Morton Tenderquick and some thoughts I have on that, and I'm going to tell you I'm a novice on this. I mean, I I talk about a lot of stuff I know a lot of things about on the air but this is something i just never got into and it's fascinating and i'm almost afraid to get into it because of where it might lead me i know what you know learning to brew beer did um and then once i get done with that i'll bring ken on and that should round us out to somewhere around a typical 1-hour show and it'll give you a lot of diversity and think about this thanksgiving's coming some of the stuff ken's going to talk about today like how to make a ham i don't think you're going to make a ham between now and thanksgiving boy you could make one between now and christmas though and I'm going to give you some stuff that, like, for the Thanksgiving, like the appetizers and all. I got some, some ideas today, uh, for you that might lead you to do a little research and figure out what you like and be able to put some, you know, summer sausage or salamis, uh, on the table either before or after. You know, if you're like us, Thanksgiving is not a day. It's a, it's a time. It's like from Thursday until Monday morning. Um, in fact, I'll tell you right now, Thursday through Monday morning, uh, until Monday morning, I don't email me and expect an answer. I shut the business down. Thanksgiving and Christmas, uh, between Christmas and New Year's, those two times are the times of the year I spend with my family. And, you know, we might have people showing up on Saturday or Sunday or Friday, just hanging out. Um, cause with a big family, you know, people get torn. Where do you go to dinner and stuff like that? And it's nice to not just have leftover turkey to put out, but have some wine, some beer, and some cool stuff. So be thinking about that, and I'm going to tell you, you're not going to have, like, you know, just do this, unless you just want to do one of the things I found on Morton's website. Um, you might have to do a little bit of research, but, man, I just found out that just within a few days, you can turn out some things that we think of as sausages without using casings uh, that sound pretty daggone good. Uh, with that... Let me take care of our uh, sponsors of the day real quick for you. Sponsor of the day number one today, Survival Gear Bags. If you want great gear and great bags to put in them, get on over to Survival Gear Bags where the awesome Kelly John Doe has a wonderful website set up for you. And if you're an MSB member, you'll get a discount on everything that you order if you check your benefits section. Kelly is a diehard member of the survival podcast community. He goes back to a time when this community had less than a thousand listeners. Uh, I'd say less than about 200 to be, you know, kind of sort of accurate, maybe 500 ish listeners. Uh, right when we first established the forum, uh, he was on there as a guy named Cart Pusher. And uh, put together some group buys because he was in the fulfillment business and said, hey, maybe I can make a business out of this. And said, hey, Survival Gear Bags is a business run by Kelly, his kids, and his wife. It's a family-run business right out of our community. Check them out today at survivalgearbags.com. Next up today, the awesome, the magnanimous, the very, very cool, the illustrious... Marjorie Wildcraft with Backyard Food Production. Marjorie's someone that's done what so many people dream about doing. They saw this, um, uh, financial catastrophe, much as I did, before 2008, and decided they were gonna make a shift in their lives right away. They've got a little farmstead down in, uh, central Texas, somewhere near Austin area-ish, kind of thing. Uh, and they have turned their backyard into a food production machine. And they'll show you how to do that on anything from rural acreage to the backyard uh, in a suburban neighborhood if you get their DVD series entitled Growing Your Groceries. Now look, I always say this about our sponsors. The best thing to do to visit our sponsors is go to thesurvivalpodcast.com and click on their banners. It's not. So I get credit for anything because I don't do that. It's not how it works. It's just that that way you know you're dealing with a true sponsor. That's true of Survival Gear Bags and Backyard Food Production. The bigger thing, though, with Backyard Food Production is they give everybody, not just just at TSP MSB members, but everybody that's a TSP listener gets a discount. So if you use their banner, you'll go to the right page and automatically get a discount. If you're an MSB member, though, go to your benefits section first because you get a better discount. Just saying. If you have somebody in your life that's uh, kind of taking up the homesteading bug and wants some, more information and how to learn to do more things, well, I'll tell you what, Backyard Food Production, we're heading to Christmas time. What a great... DVD series to get them. Uh, and Survival Gear Bags has got some cool stuff for preppers too. Everything from, you know, big old honking gifts that the old man will love you for, ladies, or little bitty, uh, stocking stuffers and what have you. Uh, last but not least, do consider joining the member support brigade. If you do that, you'll get exclusive content available only to members. And you'll help support the show at a whopping 18.3 cents per episode. Uh Military, Law Enforcement, Peace Corps, and first responders like EMTs, paramedics, firefighters, etc. If you email me before, not after, but before you join and you put service discount in the subject line, and you tell me who you are and what you're doing or who you are and what you did if you're prior service in about one or two sentences or less, I'll send you a discount code before, not after you join. It'll save you more money on the Member Support Brigade. Everybody else is still a great deal. Uh, I hear from people all the time that say they get their investment back many times over. That's how I built the Support Brigade. Extra content, extra videos, extra uh, e-books. $150 worth of free ebooks the day you join. Just download them. They're yours forever. Check it out. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com, Click on Members. And the discounts, again, pay for the membership many times over. If you're buying stuff... For everything from gardening to guns and everything in between. With that, let's take a look at uh, the year 1248. Well, in the year 1248, uh, I mentioned yesterday King Louis, um, uh, who also known as St. Louis, uh, had uh, wiped out the Cathars. Well, right next year he launched the 7th Crusade and led an army of 20,000 to Egypt. Uh, that's just a little, uh, additional thing. Pope Innocent, uh, the fourth. I love guys that name themselves innocent. You know they're guilty of something. Well, he granted the Croats, uh, permission to use their own language and script. Pope had so much power, he could tell people what language they could use in their own countries. That's what the year 1248 was like. Um, and then there's this little note here. The Aztec Empire is established. Well, I thought that was interesting. And in you know Wikipedia when they mention something like Aztec they put a link on it. Well, it sounded a little bit early to me, so I checked out the Aztec page and there's a conflict here of, of what really it means, you know, empire established. Underneath rise of the Triple Alliance in uh, in the Aztec page on Wikipedia, it says the true nature or true origin of the Mexicas is uncertain according to urban according to their legends. The Mexica tribe place of origin was Aztalan. It is generally thought that Aztalan was somewhere north of the Valley of Mexico. Some experts have placed it as far north as the southwestern United States. Based on these codices, as well as other histories, it appears that the Mexicas arrived in Chapultec in or around the year 1248. That's the only mention of the year 1248. Uh, on the Aztec page. Here's what it says about the actual Aztec Empire. The Aztec Empire was a tribute empire based on Tenochtitlan, which extended its power throughout Mesoamerica in the late post-classic period, originated in 1427, that would be almost 200 years later, as a triple alliance between the city-states of uh, Tentoletian, uh, Tex- Texaco, and uh, Tlacopan. I could probably pronounce those better with my knowledge of Spanish if I tried, but there's no real reason to. Who allied to defeat the Tenepec and, uh, Ezo Tlpaco, uh, and had previously dominated, who had previously dominated the Basin of Mexico. Soon Texaco and Taculpan became junior partners in the alliance, which was a de facto led by the Mexica of Tichol- Ticholan. Uh, the empire extended its power by a combination of trade and military conquest. Listen to this. This is interesting. It was never a true territorial empire controlling a territory by large military garrisons in conquered provinces, but rather controlled its client states primarily by installing friendly rulers in conquered cities, by constructing marriage alliances between ruling dynasties, and by extending the imperial ideology to its client states. Client states paid a tribute to the Aztec emperor, uh, the Huey Tultulani, uh and an economic strategy limiting communication and trade between outlying provinces made them depend on the imperial center for the acquisition of luxury goods. The political cloud of the empire reached far south into Mesoamerica, conquering cities as far south as uh, Chicapas and Guatemala, and spanning from the Pacific to the Atlantic Oceans, the empire reached its maximal extent in 1519, just prior to the Spanish conquistadors, led by Cortez, who managed to topple the Aztec empire by allying with some of traditional enemies of the Aztecs. Uh, so, well, let's do a little bit of an analysis here. So, this Aztec empire realizes if we want to control all of these things, what we're really interested in is money and commerce. And it would take an awful lot of boots on throats, at that point, maybe flip-flops or what have you on throats, uh, and, uh, and slate knives and spears or, uh, obsidian knives and spears against throats to accomplish this. So what we'll do is we'll, uh, we'll just make sure that we have friendly leaders in all of these little satellite states and then we'll, Make the people dependent on us, in this case for luxury goods, and we'll limit the way that they can communicate with each other, uh, so that they'll need us. And then they'll pay us a tribute. We call that in some way soft power in the world of diplomacy today, and our nation isn't really operating much differently than that, except instead of these little satellite nations that we're controlling with puppet leaderships paying us tribute, we're paying them a tribute. Now, how can someone extend an empire that way? Because, you know, if you're constantly paying out to your little satellite states, how do you survive? Well, one, you, you actually get more than you put in. So you're giving them some foreign aid, but you're reaping the, the their oil harvest or their agriculture harvest, or you're you know, in cahoots with the banking sectors, and you're loaning them so much money that they have to pay back with interest that you control them. But the other reason is because you can give them money that you don't have to worry about because you're just creating it out of thin air with the Federal Reserve. So this model, much smaller than the current U.S. and, to be fair, European model of control of satellite states throughout the, the world. And Frankly, the Asian methodology. I mean, China is is really, um, if you look at them from an honest standpoint, the new colonials. That's what they're doing. What they're doing, colonialism with soft power. And um, this is pretty much the same model, except in our modern era, you can extract from your own people that you have direct control over and use the leverage from that and financial shenanigans to control and leverage people Throughout the world, this is nothing new. The more things change, the more they stay the same. So let's talk about curing meats and why I find it interesting. There's, there's two main reasons that I find it interesting. Number one is I like to be able to preserve food. And I like to be able to preserve it in a way that I don't need to freeze it to keep it. And I, I we're not going to really learn a ton about that today with curing meats with Ken um, or about the stuff I'm gonna give you from Tender Quick. That's more when you get into the dry curing, dry sausages, the stuff that you would go to like Spain or Italy and see hanging in a butcher shop, and you go in and say, I like a slice of that, and they just slice a piece off for you. Um, and you know, they kinda do that the way we go to Starbucks and get a, a, a donut or a coffee here. Maybe that's why they're not as fat as we are. Um, and I wanna learn more about that, and, but I, but, you know, you're not gonna get that today. Um, we got some cool stuff today, but not that. But I'm going to give you one way you can do that with meat, but it's not the same kind of meat. And that's called Biltong. And I, I want to talk about what, what Biltong is. Biltong originated in South Africa. And uh, with Dutch colonists, there were there's some methodologies that definitely came to Biltong from indigenous peoples. Um, but when you go back to that era in time, it was the Dutch. Uh, that controlled the, uh, the area. And there was an abundance of, of meat available. Just from bush meat. You know, everything from, you know, kudu to zebra to gazelle to, you name it. Basically red meat. uh, Along with beef cattle that they brought in. But, you got no refrigeration. You got a pretty hot environment parts of the year. You got a cool environment other parts of the year. You got a wet season and a dry season. And you got all this meat. And you can, you know, what are you going to do at that time to preserve it? And this method came out of that and it, it, it's now kind of like a national food in South Africa. It's like they go to soccer games and buy Biltong like we go to a baseball game and buy roasted peanuts. Um, and it's, it's craved by, you know, indigenous cultures and colonial culture alike in South Africa. And I learned about it from a guy named Peter Hathaway Capstick, and I call what I do making traditional South African biltong, because he lived there as a professional hunter for over 20 years, and this is what he says is traditional. And some people from South Africa take exception to me, because I don't put Worcestershire sauce in it, which, by the way, did not exist when biltong originated. It Actually, Worcestershire sauce came out about 100 years after the first recorded making of biltong. So if we're going to say true traditional, we can't really include something that didn't exist when the tradition originated. Um, there's, I think that Biltong is a lot like jerky. If you got 14 people that were proud of their beef jerky together, there would be very big similarities on how they made their beef jerky, but none of them would do the same thing. Uh, I pretty much do exactly what Capstick uh, recorded in one of his books. I'm sitting here looking at them all. Um, and I don't remember which one it was. I can read without my glasses on. One is called Death uh, in the Silent Places, which I know is not the book that I got this from. The book that I got this from is a collection of Capstick's writings uh for... Uh, And I I could be wrong here, but I believe it was Guns and Ammo is who he was a a columnist for for a while. And there's one book that has a lot of his his work from that time kind of put into it in shorter bites than the rest of his books. That's where I originally learned about Biltong. And it was a love affair at first read. And then I made some and ate it. And it it became something that was just something very, very attractive to me about it. it. I, I got to put it to you this way: When I used to watch like old uh, stories of the American West being settled, in the in the you know the the guys going out on the trap lines or in the mountains, you know the the uh, those folks, and they would complain about eating nothing but dried, salty meat. I, I would just God, I wish I had some dry, salty meat right now. There's just something about that. You know, I don't know if it's a primal thing or whatever, but. I really, and that's part of why I'm, you know, looking into doing more with cured meats. I like that dry, salty meat type of, of thing. And, and, and Biltong kind of takes it to a new level. So I'm going to give you the basic, um, ingredients and process for making Biltong. Um, the ingredients are some apple cider vinegar and, uh, some black pepper, coriander, salt, and red meat of your choice. And in Capstick's recipe, that's it. That's all that there is. And the basic process is that you wet the meat with apple cider vinegar. I've seen people dredge it. I've seen people sprinkle it. I I usually just take a bowl or something I'm going to soak the meat in overnight for the next step. And I take a jar of the apple cider vinegar and I just kind of put my thumb over it and just kind of make sure all the meat gets some some apple cider vinegar on it. And I kind of roll it and knead it together like making a big old lumpy Thing of bread, so it all gets coated with the apple cider vinegar. And then it's time for the salt. And you take the salt and you want to use like, like a kosher salt or a sea salt, non ionized salt. And you want, you don't want fine salt, you want thick, coarse salt. Because you're going to oversalt it if you don't use a coarse, thick salt. Trust me, everybody that ever emails me that super oversalts the meat, um, almost always says, yeah, I used fine salt, even non-iodized fine salt. So you want a coarse salt, and and you want to get salt over the meat, but you don't want to cake it. Think of it like a well-done soft pretzel, okay, where there's there's salt kind of everywhere, but it's not coated. You know, you've even had probably soft pretzels before. You know, I remember I used to eat them, and they're pretty good. Then there's like clumps where there's like really heavy amounts of salt there, and you knock some off. Kind of that, so you want, so I can't give you pound to to tablespoons with something like this, but what I do is I get a little bowl full of salt and I sprinkle it on the meat and I make sure the meat gets some on it everywhere. You don't have to get a piece of salt on every spot of the meat. It's going to sit, the salt's going to dissolve, and the meat's going to absorb it. Alright, so this is something you get with experience, but there's a video series I did on this that I'll put a link in today's show notes for. So now you've got the meat dredged in, uh, in, in the apple cider vinegar. Uh, you've got the salt on it. And you're gonna put coarse ground black pepper and ground coriander on it. And you're gonna take that and you, you do that to taste. Just like you would put pepper on something to taste. I'll tell you what I do with the pepper though in a minute because I love peppered stuff. It's the other thing I really like about cured and smoked meats. So, You put your pepper and your coriander and you just take your big bin of meat and you put that in the refrigerator. I I skipped something. When you cut the meat, I like to remove with biltong and I'm not opposed to fat. Some people get upset about that too. But biltong, you make biltong, the fat on it to me tastes like candle wax. It's just not good. So you trim as much fat as you you can off of it. You want to start with the leanest types of cuts of meat you can. This will work with any red meat. I would not do this with pork. Again, I would not do this with pork. One more time, because I'm going to get the question like 87 times a day. Don't do this with pork. I would not do this with poultry. All right? I don't know, maybe a dark poultry like ostrich or something. I don't know. I, I wouldn't do it with poultry. I would do this with any red meat, deer, buffalo, beef. Uh, you could do it with lamb, except lamb's pretty fatty. I don't know how well it would work out. Any wild game, beef, buffalo, and deer are ideal. That's the kind of meat that works best for this. No, not squirrels and rabbits, beef. Because the next part will explain partly why that's the case, just on size. The meat needs to be about one inch by one inch thick. This is not jerky. This is a thick stick. Um, could be two inches wide by an inch thick. In the video, you'll see about the sizes that I cut. That's what you want to do. You want that meat thick. You've done everything i said. It's sitting in a big bowl or bin or something. It goes in the refrigerator sits there overnight. Obviously, they didn't do this back when they first started doing it, but you have a refrigerator, so I'm going to advise you to do it because it's what Peter Capstick said to do. The next day, take it out and hang it up somewhere cool and dry. Uh, In the wintertime, I could be out in a garage probably. Um, An air-conditioned room is plenty Don't put it in a box with a light bulb. Don't put it in the oven. Don't put it in a smokehouse. Don't heat it. Don't smoke it. Don't freak out. Hang it up. Now, what I do before I hang mine up is I get the pepper mill out again, and I give it another coating of pepper. Generally, I think it's got enough coriander on it from the first thing, but I like pepper. If you don't like pepper, don't use pepper. Somebody came to me at an expo recently and said, well, my wife's allergic to pepper. What would you recommend? I would recommend that you find some sort of a hot pepper, you know, not a pepper, corn pepper, but a hot pepper that's to your liking as to heat and maybe grind up dried pepper. So if you wanted to go fairly mild, you could do it with jalapeno. Um, the other thing you could do is the Szechuan pepper. Uh, you know, make sure that you don't, you don't have an allergy to that as well, but that's like the, the uh, Chinese Japanese pepper from a tree, not from a, a, it's a different species. It's very pepper like it's not the corn itself with the coating on it that has the flavor. You could use that in either of those cases, it wouldn't be biltong, but it would still be biltong. but it wouldn't be traditional. All right. You can omit the pepper. You don't have to use it. The original purpose for the pepper, according to Peter Capstick is it helps keep flies off meat. When this was made traditionally, they made it in the dry season. Two distinctive seasons in South Africa, wet and dry. They would hang it up in the shade in the dry season. The way I hang it is I get a rope, and I hang the rope across wherever I want to hang the meat. Sometimes I do this in my office. It drives the dogs crazy. And you tie knots in it. And the knots keep, so when you hang the meat, they don't slide together. I take a paper clip and open it up like an S-hook. Put one end of the S-hook through the end of the meat... Hang the other one on the string. That is it. It will need to hang for anywhere between 5 to 10 days on average. That is all you do. If you leave it hang longer, it will just get drier. If you leave it hang less time, it will be kind of wet. I will eat it 2 to 3 days in when it's quite wet in the center. Do not put it in your dehydrator. In my videos that I put out, I put it in a dehydrator. It looked like it was coming out better in the dehydrator by the second day, but the dehydrator did not work well. It's too fast, it it, it doesn't let the meat cure, it dehydrates it. What you're doing with Biltong, this is a, a method of dry pickling, and it needs the time. And what happened with the dehydrator is the outside dried too fast, and it locked stuff to the inside. And when that eventually dried out, it dried out wrong. It was like a thick piece of jerky with no tenderness left to it at all. Um, almost like, like something you'd beat a powder out of. So it was either too wet or powderized. Where when you let it go the way it's supposed to, it, it, the only way I can describe this stuff is mummified. It's almost a mummification of the meat. It's a wonderful way to do things. If you are in a place where you have a little too much humidity and you have any concerns, the only thing I would say you would do is maybe take a, like a box fan or a window fan or something like that and set it up so it's blowing air across it. From a, not right up in it, just from a distance. Just so you get air moving across it. So that, cause what's happening is the salt is wicking the moisture out of the meat and taking its place as the meat collapses and dries down. And then your, your, your coriander and your black pepper are providing your seasoning. It is, to me, one of the best things you can do with a piece of meat. Um, there's years where I've shot you know, quite a few deer. Where I've turned almost a whole deer into biltong, and I never regretted the decision to do so. You can do it with meat that's been previously frozen. If you've got a big old deer roast from last year, you just never got around to cooking, and now you're in this year and you're harvesting deer, and you want to defrost that and, and biltong it, no, I've done it with, with previously frozen meat. It's never been a problem. How I store it once it's done, I put it usually in, in, um, in ball jars or mason jars. Uh Ziploc bag, Tupperware, all that works, but a ball jar work really good. Um, you could throw an O2 absorber in there, and it ain't really necessary. Here's what hooked me on this as a meat preservation method. So Capstick, for a while, lived in Florida. And uh, this was after his career in Africa. and uh, He was living in Florida for a while, and eventually moved back to Africa, by the way. But uh, while he was living in Florida, he was going through some things one day, and he found a game vest. You know, that he used to wear when he was a hunter in in, uh, in Africa. It had been, he said, at least 10 years since he'd seen that game vest. In it was some foil, and in that foil were two sticks of biltong. He tried it. He said it was a little dry for his taste, but it was certainly edible, and there was nothing wrong with it. It hadn't decomposed or gone off in any way. It hadn't become rancid. I was I was like, well, that's a method I need to try. And then when I did it, now, here's my advice. Don't be afraid of this. Good, clean meat. Clean techniques. And as that meat starts to cure, and you start to get it to a point where it starts to turn, it'll turn to a blackish color. Take a piece down and try it. Before it's even full, and, and sample it. Try to keep yourself from eating it all before it's done. Along the way, and figure out what it looks like when you like it best. I like it if, where if you slice a stick open, in the very center, it almost looks a little rare. The center's a little wet and a little rare. Wherever you take it and put it in a place where it can't get any, you know, it doesn't have open access to the air, a bag, a jar, whatever, it will stop or radically slow down the curing process at that point. So figure out where you like it, I guess is the best way I can say. So that's Biltong, and uh, it's something I suggest that every prepper try. If we ever end up long-term grid down, It's infinitely easier and requires less resources. than You don't have to smoke it. It doesn't have to be in the sun. As long as you have dry air, salt, and vinegar, you can make it. And if you have pepper and coriander, you can make it really good. Now, can you do things like Worcestershire and honey and stuff like that? Sure you can. I'll just tell you that anything you add to it takes it away from the tradition and toward your customization. I've never customized biltong. Suppose I should. I, but I think if you start using things like, you know, molasses, brown sugar, honey, and you put sugar in the equation, you up the potential for spoilage. Now I'm gonna say this one more time. Do not freak out about this. Do not insist that you need a dehydrator to do this. It will ruin it. Do not put it in a box with a light bulb, like some of the websites tell you to on the internet. Do not smoke it. Do not put a ton of salt on it because you're afraid you're going to eat it and you're going to die. In the video, I believe you'll see me eat some raw meat. I don't fall over and die. This is not for use with pork or poultry. This is for red meat that's been handled properly only. If you're doing that, there is no reason whatsoever to freak out and think you're going to die or kill yourself from this method. It's been used, again, I believe since the 1700s, and I've never heard of anybody dying or getting sick from bad biltong. If you have a piece of meat that goes bad, you will know it went bad. There is very little that can go wrong with the Biltong process. Again, take a look at my video. You can look up other things on it. But it is dead simple and awesome. So now, before I bring Ken on, so Ken mentions a couple times these different cures, cure number one and cure number two, one for wet and one for dry. And he just throws in at some point in the interview, he mentions a thing called Morton uh, Tenderquick. And there's another thing he mentioned, but Tenderquick was the one for some reason when he said that, I just latched onto it. So I went to Morton's website, and I'm going to give you guys a few recipes here, and I'll put a link to this page where you can learn more about it, uh, where you can make things that Ken and I are not going to talk about. Salami. uh, I'm going to give you one for salami, one for herb sausage, and one for pepperoni. All use beef. There are other recipes with Tender Quick that are similar that use pork. So you could use pork. You could use a pork and beef combination. You can do anything you want with this except follow the recipe to make sure you use the right amounts. Morton has a pretty distinctive warning label. But let me give you a couple recipes here and how simple this would be. And again when I think of sausage and salamis I always think of stuffing things. But when I read this it made sense to me how I could quickly start playing around with this. Especially getting near the holidays. So the recipe summary for beef salami. Mustard seeds, garlic, nut, name, and black pepper transform ground beef into homemade salami with the help of Morton Tenderquick or Sugar Cure mix. So you can do the Sugar Cure or the Tenderquick. Sugar Cure was the other one. Um, I would probably think this would be cool to make the same exact recipe, pound each, one with Tenderquick and one with Sugar Cure, and decide which one you like better and start to experiment. When I make beer, a lot of times I'll make two batches that are exactly the same and change only one ingredient, like the type of yeast or the type of hop or the, the, the caramel malt. So I might do the exact same beer, one with 20-degree malt and one with 80-degree malt, and compare those. And then I might say, well, I like that. And then I might say, okay, the next thing I'm going to do is sh-. so you could do things. That's what I'm trying to get you to start thinking about, as I've said before, making chicken soup without the parsley. There are certain things you have to do, like how much of a cure you use per pound of meat. There's hard rules there for safety. Other than that, it ain't going to matter if you listen to this and go, I don't like mustard seeds and not put mustard seeds in it. It won't be the same as what the rest. So I'm just trying to get you in that mindset of have freedom here. And that might be a great first step is just make this salami or one of these other things and put sugar cure in one and tender quick in the other and try them side by side. That's kind of interesting. So here we go. The ingredients. One pound of ground beef. One and a half level teaspoons of Morton Tender Quick Mix or Morton Sugar Cure Plain Mix. One teaspoon of Morton Table Salt. One half teaspoon of mustard seed. One half teaspoon of freshly ground black pepper. One half teaspoon of garlic powder. One eighth teaspoon of nut and egg. A few drops of liquid smoke if you desire. Directions: This is how simple this is. Combine all the ingredients, mixing until thoroughly blended. Divide them in half. Shape each half into a slender roll about one and a half inches in diameter. Wrap in plastic or foil. So you're creating the shape of the salami, right? Um, Refrigerate it overnight. So it sits in the refrigerator night. It firms up. The curing stuff and the spices do their thing. You're basically curing and marinating here with a dry marinate with these seasonings at the same time, which are also staying in the final product, all right? Back to the ingredient. Unwrap, bake on a broiler pan at 325 degrees Fahrenheit until a meat thermometer inserted in the center of the roll reads 160 degrees Fahrenheit. 50 to 60 minutes. Uh, they're covering their butt with 160 degrees. I guarantee you that if you do this a few times, you know when it's done. All right, especially with beef. Uh, store wrapped in a refrigerator or, and use within three to five days or freeze for later use. I bet it lasts longer than that, too. Um, if you want to do spicy beef salami, it says substitute one and a half teaspoons of Morton sausage and meatloaf seasoning mix for the one teaspoon of Morton table salt. So what do I immediately think here? Well, I think that what might be cool is... In there, with it just says, you know, the, the ground black pepper, to, to take a handful of black peppercorns and just throw them in there. So that it's like that salami when you cut it, you end up with the whole black peppercorns and the knife ends up cutting them in, in pieces, and it has so much more of a forward pepper taste. That would be one thing if you're a pepper lover. Another thing is, I love pepper wrapped, uh, pep- pepper coated salami. So you could roll it in black, coarse ground black pepper. Uh, before you baked it, so the outside was coated in black pepper. That would that would be pretty freaking cool. Um, with salami, I don't know that I have a lot of other suggestions there. But um, if you wanted to move it a little bit more toward the um, the spicy kind of uh world, it ain't gonna be the same. But if you just want to move it in that direction, you could do something like some a little bit of cayenne, just a little bit of cayenne in there, and some paprika like a smoky Hungarian paprika added to this, how much? As much as you like. Um, It might be interesting um, to to, to make two batches, again, and this time use the same cure, and in one do maybe like a teaspoon of chili powder. Those are all things I can think of doing with this and a lot of other ones, but in the interest of moving along, the other one I wanted to read to you here, hold on a second because when I went backwards it reset, is a pepperoni recipe. Uh, it says, uh, make your own pepperoni for your next pizza party simply as mixing seasonings like liquid smoke, crushed red pepper, and garlic with ground beef and Morton Tender Quick or Sugar uh, Cure Mix. Uh, preparations, combine all ingredients, mixing until thoroughly well blended. Uh, divide mixture in half, shape each into a slender roll about one and a half inches in diameter. Seeing it, you know how to do one, you know have to do that. Wrap in plastic or foil refrigerator overnight, unwrap rolls, and place on broiler pan. Bake at 325 until a meat thermometer inserted into the roll reads on in or 50 to 60 minutes. So it's basically the exact same thing, but here's the ingredients on it. One pound of lean green brown beef. One and a half tablespoons of Morton Tender Quick or Sugar Cure. It's the same. Teaspoon of liquid smoke. They're kind of saying you should do that with pepperoni here. Three-quarter teaspoon of freshly ground black pepper. One-half teaspoon of mustard seed. Here's where it goes a little different. One-half teaspoon of fennel seed, slightly crushed. Uh, one quarter teaspoon of crushed red pepper, one teaspoon of one quarter teaspoon of co- crushed red pepper, one quarter teaspoon of aniseed, one quarter teaspoon of garlic powder. So, so salami and pepperoni are quite similar, and it might be interesting to make both of those and just try them side by side and see how different they really are. Um, something I think could make either one of these interesting is to go from a pound of lean ground beef to something a little fattier, like a pound of beef and a, or half a pound of beef and a half a pound of ground pork um, and, and get more of that pork component going on, or do it with pork. Um, since you're going to bake it, there's no reason not to. The other thing is either of these could be smoked, either hot smoked, and brought up to temperature, and there's no reason I couldn't do this on a side box smoker. I promise you, I could I could get that temperature, no problem, internal. It might take more than the 50 to 60 minutes, but I could do that. And it'd be an interesting uh, change. Um, or it could be done with a, a light smoking. So you could smoke it for maybe an hour, heavy, cool smoke, 140 degree-ish, in your side box or your smoker, and then remove it, and bake it as directed. Both of those would add some things and eliminate the need for liquid smoke. Um, the other one I wanted to share with you is another sausage, uh, and it's called an herbed sausage. Again, all of these are on Morton's own website. Italian herbs, Parmesan cheese, and red wine transform ground beef into succulent sausage with the help of Morton Tenderquick or Sugar Cure. So here's, I'm not going to read the instructions. The instructions are exactly the same as the other two. Uh, here's the ingredients. A pound of lean ground beef, one and a half level t- tablespoons, teaspoons of Morton Tenderquick mix or Morton Sugar Cure. Okay, so I'm thinking that the key here is a pound of meat to one and a half teaspoons of Morton Tenderquick or Sugar Cure. And that with that, we can get crazy. That that's, that that's the ratio we need to know, right? If we want to get a good cure out of this, one and a half level teaspoons and one ground of beef or one ground, pound of pork or one you know ground of whatever we want to do deer and if we wanted to do two we would use 3 level teaspoons so that would be one tablespoon all right so there's there's the whole you know making chicken soup without the parsley thing I talk about now that you know that that should give you all kinds of ideas um, here's the the herb sausage though uh 3 tablespoons of grated parmesan uh, and I would say do not buy the stuff in the green can that's in crumbles. Get the real Parmesan shredded. You know, either buy your own parm and, and, and grate it or buy the, you know, they sell the grated Parmesan that's actually grated Parmesan. Uh, either of those. Uh, two tablespoons of dry red wine. Uh, one teaspoon of fresh ground pepper. One teaspoon of dry basil crushed. One teaspoon of dry oregano crushed. Um, one half teaspoon of mustard seed. One quarter teaspoon of garlic powder, one eighth teaspoon of onion powder, and you do the same thing you do with the other ones. Now, here's what I'm thinking immediately with this rosemary. Rosemary. Here's another thing I'm thinking. Um, let me add up the uh, the, the herbs one, two teaspoons, two and a half, almost three teaspoons. Three teaspoons. Forget everything else I said. Just get you get to the dry red wine, the fresh ground pepper, and then instead of using the the stuff that's there, the oregano, the basil, uh, three teaspoons, three and a half teaspoons, Chef Keith's Northern Italian. That would probably be really, really good. So my only question for myself now is which one of these do I try first? Because my my instinct is to get about six pounds of ground beef today if my wife will let me, considering all that we have coming up, and 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 do all of them. But we'll see if that happens. Anyway, uh, that's just, you know, I'm trying to kind of spin a web for you today and get you tangled up in the concept that there's more to do with meat than just grill it uh, or smoke it. There's a lot of things we can make built on. We can make these simple sausages without even having a stuffer, um, any simple salamis and pepperonis, and God knows what else we can come up with. And the other thing we can do, though, is we can make things like, Buckboard bacon. What's buckboard bacon? We'll be talking about that here in a second. We can make things like our own hams, our own Canadian bacon. We can we can do things, you know, we can, you know, brine our foods that we're gonna cook. Uh and to talk about that with us and, and how to do this and the basic things that we need to be able to do that, I'd like to introduce our special guest now, uh, Ken Strayer. Ken is an awesome guy. Uh he's a medically retired veteran, served ten years in the United States Navy. Been listening to our show for over three years. He is a supporter of liberty and an oath keeper, and he makes cured meats. That sounds like a kind of guy. I'm happy to meet with that. Hey Ken, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. It's great to be here, Jack. Hey, um, I don't remember exactly how we synced up, but I know it was right after I mentioned that I was interested in doing some stuff on curing meats and had started researching it because I just think it's an awesome thing and. Cured meat's expensive, and if you can do it yourself, uh, you can save some money and make, you know, make it the way you want it. Before we get into that, though, could you tell people just a little bit about your background? Um, you know, you listen to the show, obviously, and uh, you, uh, you have this kind of, like a, I guess, a prepper bent and all, and most of us don't go there in a straight line, and it's kind of usually interesting for people to get to know a guest just uh, by hearing a little bit about how they ended up where they are now.
1: Well, uh, my name's Ken Strayer, and uh, I was in the Navy for about nine and a half years. Uh, I've been listening to your show for about three, and uh, I've always been kind of interested in the outdoors and cooking and all kinds of stuff, and uh, just kind of through research and looking around online, I ended up uh, getting more into the proper mindset, getting prepared in just every way of my life, but, uh, but as far as curing meats go... Um, I've just been interested in eating fresh or eating more organically, and my research just kind of led me down this path, and I gave it a try one day, and I liked it, so here I am.
0: So exactly how did you get involved with that? I mean, you know, it was a a health thing or or, or what? No, it wasn't so much a health thing. Just uh,
1: I don't know if you've ever had like a ham or something from a main grocery store. It has kind of like a chemically taste. Yeah, and I was just trying to. Find, I knew there had to be a better way, a better method. So I just started looking into it and uh, decided just to give it a try on my own, see if I can make something a little better.
0: Yeah, that, that's part of my motivation too. And the other thing is that like the really good stuff's expensive. I mean, um, you know, when you start looking at things that are you know out of Italy or Spain or something, they're 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 really really expensive. Um, and with that said, you know, what kind of equipment do you need to to cure meats? I I, I'm really kind of a complete novice at this.
1: You really need a bare minimum. Uh, most people, um, what your main drawback is going to be, you need some room in a refrigerator. Um, you need to use some type of food-grade bucket. I use a five-gallon uh, food-grade bucket with uh, one of those screw-on gamma lids, um, but you know, any type of big mixing bowl or any type of container that can physically hold your meat and a good bit of liquid to go with it um, is really all you need, and... Uh, a meat injector is helpful, as is uh, the curing salts, which are required. But other than that, that's about
0: it. Well, it doesn't sound that complicated. Um, what's the basic process then like? So, you know, a person decides they want to, you know, cure a, a cut of meat. What, what actually gets done?
1: All right. Well, there's uh, two main ways you can either wet cure something or you can dry cure. A uh, wet cure, cure is exactly what it sounds like. You're, it's going to be wet, so you're going to submerge it in a brine solution. And a dry cure is you're going to rub it down with dry ingredients, and it's going to sit dry on like a, a rack. Um, but the basic process is you have to make uh, either your brine or your your dry rub. Um, that's going to use some form of curing salt. There's a bunch of different kinds, and it's important to – to know the, the difference between them, so you make sure you're using the right one. The For the wet brine, you're going to want to use a cure number one, and for a dry, you're going to want to use a cure number two. Um, the difference in the two is cure number one has sodium nitrite, and cure number two has sodium nitrate. Um, they act differently at different temperatures, and uh, that's the big difference. So after you have the proper cure selected, You have to prepare your meat, and that's usually just involved basic trimming, you know, trimming off any excess skin or fat that you don't want. Um, If the meat's thicker than two inches, you need to inject it with the the wet solution. If you're using a dry cure, it does not matter so much. Um, But for a wet, you have to inject it. It's important to inject it all around the bone structures. And uh, after that, you put it in your container. You either fill it with brine so the meat's submerged, are if you're dry rubbing, um, dry curing rather, you put it on an open rack and uh, rub it down good and then stick it somewhere where it's cool but not cold and then
0: you wait. What kind of wait time are we talking about?
1: Uh, Depends on what you're doing, Uh, like a full ham, a whole ham will take about a month for a wet cure and for a dry cure it can take a little longer depending on exactly what you want to do. If you're doing a smaller cut of meat, it can take anywhere from a couple of days to a week or two. Um, Just for some examples, if you're doing any type of poultry, it's typically overnight to two to three days. If You're going to do buckboard bacon, it's about eight to ten days. Uh, Regular bacon or belly bacon is about 10 to 14 days. If you're going to do a shoulder, like a Boston butt, that's uh, about 12 to 16 days. A whole ham is about four weeks. And uh, if you're going to do, like, a corned beef with, like, a beef roast or a brisket, it's going to be about 10 to 20 days depending on the size of it.
0: You know, you mentioned wet cure and dry cure and the nitrate versus nitrite. Um, is that the only real difference there? Is there, is there a big difference in the, in the process or in the result or in the cures themselves?
1: Uh, yeah, I'll go over those with you. Um, so cure number one, as I said, is sodium nitrate. It's 6.25% uh, Concentrate to be exact. Uh, It's multi-purpose. You can use it for wet or dry. However, it requires refrigeration Um, The temperature needs to be between uh, About 36 and 40 degrees and the closer to 40 degrees the better Um, Curing will stop completely when you get to 28 degrees and it slows down from 36 to 28 So it's important to have um, your refrigerator set a little higher when you're doing it to make sure the curing uh works correctly. Um cure number one is known for being a, a faster working cure, because um, it eliminate the conversion process that's already been done for you. Where if cure number two, it has both sodium nitrate and nitrate. And that needs to be around forty to sixty degrees for the reaction to take place. So it's, you know, like a just a cool, dry place. Most people's basements if you're in a not a really hot part of the country will work. And for that, the process, the nitrate will turn into nitrite, and then the nitrate will convert to nitrous oxide, which will uh, cure the myoglobin in the meat.
0: So So, go ahead. I'm sorry.
1: I was going to say cure number two is typically only used for dry curing. And then there's uh, one one other thing. It's called Morton Tenderquick or sugar cure. A lot of people have probably heard of it. Um, you need a. That's a little different. It only has a half a percent concentration because it has salt already included. So you use a couple of cups of that. Vice, if you were going to use cure number one, you use like a tablespoon.
0: And what I was what I was going to ask is, there's sometimes there's concern over toxicity and things like that. Um, do you have to be careful with you know how much of the stuff you're using? Can you use too much? Create problems for yourself? That type of thing. Uh, you definitely can. I don't know the exact health ramifications
1: for using too much or too little, um, but the guidelines are the best thing to do is use use a pre-mixed uh, cure. Do not buy separate sodium nitrite or sodium nitrate and try and measure it out. It's so small of an amount that you can't really measure it accurately at home. Um, so you can buy uh, a pre-mixed cure number one or cure number two. So when you cure like Google cure number one, there's about 10 different main brands, and all those are pre-mixes. If it says cure number one, it's a pre-mix. If it says cure two, it is a pre-mix. Okay. So the uh, the maximum concentrate is about 3.84 ounces per gallon of brine. Or if you're doing a, a dry cure, it's about one and a half teaspoons per five pounds of meat.
0: Okay. And I guess we could also have the opposite pr- problem, too. If you don't use enough, you could not get a good enough cure?
1: Exactly. If you don't use enough, uh, it won't cure correctly. Um, if you use too much, it's more of a health thing, but there's a fine balance. If The lower amount you use, the longer it takes to cure the product, but it gives it a more subtle flavor. It's not as chemically tasting. If you use a higher concentrate, it'll cure a lot faster, but it can give it a more stronger kind of taste.
0: Got you. Got you. So if somebody, I mean, let's look at something that's a real common thing that people eat all the time that's a cured meat, uh, like a ham. If I wanted to make a ham, could you just kind of walk us through step by step from you know choosing the cut of meat to ending up with an actual ham, how that process works? Yep, so obviously, the first thing is you have to
1: find a cut of meat. Um, I just go to my local local butcher shop. They don't carry them, uh, Nar do any of the grocery stores in there area carry them normally. Um, every now and then around the holidays, they'll uh, get one in. You might get lucky if you just walk in. But most of the time, you have to pre-order them. Um, you have to tell them you want a fresh ham or, or a hog leg. Uh, if you just try and, I don't know, it's a lot of butchers, uh, especially if, it's, if they're not a real butcher shop, they kind of look at you like you're crazy if you start asking them for different cuts of meat. Um, but you just have to say fresh ham. That's what they know it as, and then they'll be able to get it for you. So once you get it home... Um, you want to trim it down a little bit. Uh, usually it has a large flap of skin on it, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. However, the more surface area the cure has access to the meat, the better the cure you're going to get and the more even. So you want to trim off that, that skin flap as much as possible, as well as trim down the a little bit of the fat. Um, leave some fat on there, obviously, for flavor and whatnot, but uh, don't trim it all the way down to the bare bones. So once you get it trimmed, uh, you need to mix up your cure solution. Uh, The basic recipe for a good brine is one gallon of water, one third to one cup of sea or kosher salt, uh, a cup of some type of sweetener. So you can use uh, regular white sugar, honey. uh, You could use stevia, Splenda, agave. um, You know anything that's that's sweet. Uh, And then you need a one one cup of brown sugar or dark brown sugar. Or you could go all honey if you prefer. I find that the brown sugar gives a better flavor. Um, And then you need one heaping tablespoon of cure number one. You mix all that up. Do not heat it. Uh, Mix it up cold to where it's uh, all well dissolved. And then uh, if the piece of meat, in this case a ham, is larger than two inches, which a ham definitely is, uh, you need to use a meat injector. And you want to inject all around and along the bone structures as well as into any of the muscle groups that... Um, are thicker than than others. Um, so you want to pretty much inject it until it won't hold anymore and it's all oozing back out. Then you're going to put it in your bucket or your container, and then you're going to pour the remaining uh, brine over the top of it so it's well-submerged. It's going to have a tendency to float a little bit, so you're going to want to weigh it down with like a Ziploc bag full of uh, some of the brine. And then you're going to seal your container Put it in the refrigerator. Uh, Make sure, once again, it's set around 36 to 40 degrees. And then for a ham, you have to wait about three to four weeks. Um, There's not really any way to know for sure if it's ready unless you take it out and cut it open. So you just have to kind of mark it on your calendar and know when it's supposed to be ready. Uh, Once you pull it out of the brine, you want to rinse it off good. It's going to have a real slimy kind of feel to it that's normal. Just rinse it off. Put it back on a on a tray in the refrigerator for about another two days to let it kind of form a pe- uh, pedicule. I think that's how it said. Um, kind of a, it'll get kind of tacky and dry on the outside of the meat. And uh, after those two days, then it's ready to put in the smoker. And there's a couple of different ways to smoke it. Um, you can either cold smoke it or you can hot smoke it. Um, if you're gonna cook, if you're gonna prepare it a couple days in advance and then want to cook it a few days later, you would cold smoke it. Um, if you want to eat it the same day, uh, go ahead and hot smoke it. And for those that aren't familiar with those two terms, cold smoke is typically between about 100 and 200 degrees um, Fahrenheit in your smoker, and a hot smoke would be you know above 200, 200 to 300 degrees.
0: And w- when you're when you're doing this, uh, what type of a smoker do you use? Are you using like a smokehouse or a side box or something you built or?
1: Uh, I have a side box, and I also have an electric uh, master built, I think. Um, both I've done them in both, and uh, they both uh, work pretty good. It's really, I guess, personal preference uh, with whatever smoke you already have. As long as the meat
0: will physically fit,
1: it, it'll do the job for you.
0: Okay. Um, you mentioned a term that I think a lot of people, when you said it, might have like went, What? for a couple of seconds, um, with a type of uh, bacon called buckboard bacon. The only reason I know what that is, I read an article about it uh, years ago in uh, Backwoods Home Magazine. Could you tell people what that is? And that's probably a good first thing to try, I, I would guess.
1: Yeah, buckboard bacon, as far as I know, is uh, it's a, a shoulder that's been deboned, and uh, you cure it and you slice it like you would bacon. It just has a little bit more, uh, it's more meat than uh, than fat. Compared to like a belly bacon,
0: and to do that, it's that's a pretty simple, and that's usually done with a dry cure.
1: Uh, you can do it with either one. Uh, personally, I prefer wet cures better in general. Uh, okay, but you can certainly do both. I find the dry cures would typically give you a little bit saltier of a taste, and uh, the dry cure can be a little tricky to get done right. Um, if, probably wouldn't be what I recommend to start out with trying. I would talk about a wet one first, but uh, it's not too difficult in any case.
0: So one of the things that I've always wanted to, to do is start making some of the sausages. Have you done much with that yet at all?
1: I have done a few. I haven't done a whole lot. Um, they're, depending on what kind of sausage you want to make, uh, you know, a fresh sausage doesn't really need any cure unless you just want it for the flavor, in which case you could use cure one or two uh, to add into the meat mixture when you're making it. Uh, if you wanted to make a, like a dry fermented sausage like a Genoa you know, salami or uh pepperoni um then you would that's a strict uh, dry cure process
0: okay um have you gotten into any of the i don't know if you'd call them exotic or just maybe more expensive things like prosciutto and uh copper cola or anything like that, or are you pretty much just doing hams and and bacons or
1: yeah, I haven't really gotten into any of those yet. Uh, one of these days, I probably will. Um, the big drawback with those is they take a lot of time. Uh, okay. have, you have to really dry them out all the way. They can take uh, six months to a year to make correctly. Um, so I just personally don't have the, the time to do it, so I've kind of limited myself to different kinds of bacons and beef roasts and hams and that kind of thing.
0: Oh, okay, cool. So what have you done with beef? Uh, I've made uh, corned beef. uh I've
1: done it with uh, beef roasts and uh uh portions of uh brisket. And I, I use this exact same brine recipe I gave out a little bit ago and it takes about ten to twenty days and uh it's all there is to it. Uh when you cure beef it comes out with a totally different flavor than uh than pork, even if you're using the exact same ingredients.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I guess so. I mean beef and pork taste differently. <laughs> Um, yeah, that, that's kind of cool. So I've heard of this stuff called sour bone and black spot. W- what are those things, and what can you do to prevent that from happening? Because neither one of them sounds like something you really want. <laughs> yeah, not so much.
1: All right, so sour bone is when the bone inside a given piece of meat actually starts to rot during the curing process, and it's gonna your the bone will be kind of greenish black looking, and it'll be really soft and spongy, like you could push your finger like into the bone Um, and the way you prevent that well let me talk about black spot first black spot is where a portion of muscle um, does not cure correctly and it as it sounds turns black and it's easy to spot so if you were to slice open a piece of meat and there's a big section like the size of your fist that's black that's what's called black spot and the best way to prevent it is uh, using your meat injector uh, and inject all around the bone structures if you're doing a ham uh, the H bone, I think that's how it's pronounced. A I T C H, I think. Um, it's like the the joint, and you actually need to inject inside of it um, to make sure the cure gets in there good. Um, other other cuts of meter are a little easier if it's just a straight bone. You just kind of put the injector along the bone, and uh, it's pretty easy to do. And then in any thick pieces of muscle, you want to inject to prevent a black spot. And the idea with the injecting is it's you're allowing the meat to cure from the inside out as well as the outside end.
0: Okay. Um, is there a way that, like, people can cure meats that have some dietary restrictions, uh, you know, diabetics or uh, maybe people that are looking to do some curing with lower sodium?
1: Yeah, there sure is. Um, that For the recipe uh, for the brine, Uh, It's really all about how your flavor profile are your dietary restrictions. I personally prefer a little bit less salty of a ham, so I use about a third to a half cup of salt. Um, You have to use at least about a third of a cup, and and that does not yield a very salty product at all. Um, Compared to if you were to use the full one cup of salt amount, you can definitely tell the difference if you had them side by side. Uh, We'll take a little playing around with to see what suits your, your diet and your taste the best. I recommend starting in the middle of the road at a half cup, and then you can see whether you want to go a little higher or a little lower. Um, As far as uh, the other things you can change, is the sugar uh, type. Um, You know, you can use any type of sweetener you want, and the whole purpose of the sweetener is just to counteract the salt to give you that nice balance of flavor. Um, So you could use something like stevia, you could use agave for a, a low glycemic index. Um, You could use Splenda if you really want to. It wouldn't be my first choice. Um, So, yeah, those are the the things you can do. You can lower the salt and uh, change the type of sugar you use to meet uh, your dietary needs.
0: Very cool. Um, So if people are looking to learn more about this, are there any resources that you would recommend? Uh, There's two resources
1: that I would recommend. The first one is the USDA Inspector's Manual. Um doesn't really have a lot of good information in it, but as far as the amounts of cure that are um, safe or deemed safe, and the, the, as far as the minimum and the maximum, it has all the different measurements um, for wet curing and dry curing. Uh, and then the best resource that I found uh, is a forum called Smoking Meat Forums. Uh, all the guys talk about is curing and smoking stuff, and if you have any questions, it's a great community to uh, to hop on and ask your question about whatever it may be, whatever you're trying to do, and uh, a lot of people will be there to help you out. That's where I learned a lot of uh, a lot of the information about curing when, uh, when I was first getting into it.
0: So um, could you talk about maybe some alternatives to the prepared cured? I know you said not to, like, try making your own with the sodium nitrate or nitrite, but is there any alternative to uh, those methods of curing?
1: Yes, there definitely are. Um, there's quite a few actually. You need to research each one individually to make sure you're going to be using the correct amounts because some of them are all a little differently. Um, the closest replacement is going to be called Veg Powder 504. Um, that's like a pre converted mix to nitrate. It's a mix of uh, like dried celery and spinach and kale, I believe. And uh, that's a good mix. That's a direct substitute at 6.25%. It's already been manufactured to use directly. Some other ones though are, uh, you have celery powder, celery juice, um, parsley, cherry, beet, or spinach powder, or sea salt. Um, originally way back, you know, in the dawn of man when they first started curing meats, uh, salt was used only. Um, sea salt naturally has, uh, nitrates in it. Um, the modern salts, they've been removed through the process of how they make them now. Um, so, you can't go buy like a big bag of sea salt and uh, expect to cure your meat uh, effectively and, and safely. Um, if you were to make your own sea salt, you would be able to, but uh, the ones they sell now do not have it. Then there's the uh, Morton Tender Quick and Sugar Cure. Uh, I mentioned those briefly earlier. Um, they have 0.5% concentrate. Um, a lot of the mix is salt, so if you're going to use – it's perfectly good, safe to use. You just have to look up the correct amount for the weight of meat that you're going to be doing. Um, for the normal brine that I mentioned, uh, you're using a tablespoon. And for the Morton Tender Quick, you'd be using a couple of cups. Um, so
0: it's a little bit different of a concentrate, but you can definitely use that as well. Okay, cool. Um What about – are there any, like, particular additives or anything – not additives is probably not the word – spices or seasonings or special sauce or uh, anything that you like to add beyond the basic cure from a flavor or an enhancement standpoint or, I don't know, I always like meats peppered, anything like that?
1: Uh, Yeah, definitely. You can add really whatever seasonings you want. Um, the, The basic brine recipe I gave is just the bare minimum that you need to use. You can add anything you want. I like to add. Uh, cloves and peppercorns, Uh, you know, you can add garlic, onion, uh, you know, really whatever flavors you like. Um, The only thing I would recommend is just doing it in small amounts the first time you do it because it, since it sits in the brine for so long, it really can get concentrated. Um, So, you know, really whatever amount you're planning to put in, I'd reduce it by half.
0: Okay. Um, could you talk a little bit more about dry curing stuff? We kind of you know, glossed over that because you do seem to prefer the, the wet cure methods, but um, I, I, there, it does seem like another skill set kind of that people might want to add.
1: Yeah, the dry curing is definitely a more advanced uh, skill set. Um, the best way to do it is to use, you need some type of rack where the meat can sit um, above the juices that will come out. So when you put on the the dry cure and the salt, it's going to be drawing moisture out of the meat during the curing process. And it's very important that the meat does not sit in that or it can start to spoil. Um, And the reason it's going to start to spoil is because the dry curing is done at a warmer temperature than a refrigerator. So it's important to have it in some type of container that drains uh, all that away from the meat well. And uh, once you pass the dry curing time, Um, which for most things is going to be around a month or two. Uh, Once you get past that, then you have to air dry it even further. That's typically where you would hang it up in a a smokehouse or something or in a controlled environment um, to where it's going to air dry for another uh, few weeks to a few months, depending on how dry you want it and exactly what you're trying to make. Um, Small sausages and things like that, like pepperoni and what have you, um, they'll need to dry for about a week and a half to two weeks after they get done curing, whereas like a ham when need to dry for about another six months once it's done curing.
0: Sounds like maybe one of the things that people might want to consider if they're going to do a lot of this is picking up a refrigerator, like maybe a used one, uh, especially the stuff that you're not going to do for that long, a period of time. Just because you have it doesn't mean it needs to be plugged in and running all the time, but it would seem like if you did up like a bunch of pepperoni or sausage or something like that, it it, it might make it a lot more feasible for someone in a climate like mine to be able to do this if they had an extra refrigerator or something like that.
1: Yeah, definitely. In fact, that's exactly what I did. I uh, bought a little small, one of those mini fridges um, that's basically just about the perfect size for a five-gallon bucket. Um, That's where I use. I can either put in a few racks of sausage or I can fit one bucket with like two hams in there. Um, You you definitely need something, unless you're going to be doing dry curing only. Uh, you know, down in your basement
0: or something where it's kind of cool. And if you live where you have a basement, too, I mean, I, I pretty much would need it for either or um, just due to the, the temperature and the swings and fluctuations here and the and lack of ability to, like, dig a hole in the ground more than about a foot deep. Um, but I just, I, as you were saying that, I just, you know, looked up on Craigslist and there's tons of, like, used refrigerators for a couple hundred bucks. So it seems like it's definitely one avenue people could take. I had mentioned when I first started talking about learning how to do this using my keyser, which is a great big chest freezer that I've converted into a, uh, uh, a basically a beer tap system. And there's plenty of room in there beyond what I need for that. And I was told that it would be fine for like a wet cure or something in a bucket like you're talking about, but not to even think about it for dry curing because of the way those things work, the humidity's too high, which is probably the case looking at the, you know, the condensation on the sidewalls and things like that.
1: Yeah, definitely. For the dry curing, you you really can do it at any temperature. It, it originally developed in hot climates. Oh, okay. It's not that a hot temperature is bad per se. Um, just for the general person that doesn't have the type of equipment to really Check it thoroughly to make sure it's not growing, something it's not supposed to. Um, The best temperature is to do it around 40 to 60 degrees. Um, You can really do it anywhere. As long as you're confident that you put the right amount of cure on and you reapply it every few weeks if it's going to be going for a long time, uh, you won't run into any problems. Uh, The biggest issue, like you mentioned, is going to be humidity um, because you're trying to draw that moisture out of the meat. So you want it in some type of cool, dry place. Um, If you have a smokehouse, Um, That's a great place to put it in. You can control it just by leaving the smoker going real low um, with no smoke, just heat.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, kind of what hooked me into the idea that this wasn't really that hard was to watch this old man make capricola on YouTube. And he had the meat all, you know, uh, cured, uh, the initial curing part done or what have you. and. He rolled it in cayenne pepper and, uh, and, uh, paprika and put it in these cases. And the guy that was filling them said, What are you going to do with it now? And he says, I'm going to take it out of my garage and hang it up till it's done. And I was like, that, <laughs> that seems like a valuable skill for a prepper to have to be able to do that type of curing. But it sounds like it takes a little bit of, uh, time and experience to be comfortable with doing it that way. It definitely takes time and experience. Like I said, the biggest thing to,
1: to do is make sure you have your measurements for your for your different amounts of meat correct. If you have your measurements of your cure right, you can cure anything with zero problems as long as you keep
0: it dry or or wet if you're wet curing. Depending on which one you're doing. What was that website you mentioned again with a forum? Uh, it's called smokingmeatforums.com. Very cool, man. Well, hey, I appreciate you taking time to uh, share all this with us today, Ken.
1: Oh, it's great being here, Jack.
0: And uh, if you uh, if you uh, ever decide to start doing something like making prosciutto or, or, or something like that, let me know because uh, oh. <laughs> I like prosciutto.
1: <laughs> I like it too. Whenever I get the time, I plan on giving it a shot.
0: All right, man. Uh, folks, with that, this has been Jack Spearka today along with Ken Strayer, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. see our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I
1: guess, and we follow our...